Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank uh, our outstanding witnesses for being with us today. And, and uh, there will be probably fewer uh, people here today as a result. I think you all know voting ended yesterday and a lot of people headed out uh, to do other things. But uh, I do want to thank Senator Cardin and Senator Menendez for being here. And, and uh, I want to thank Senator Cardin for his continued push in regard to this particular topic and certainly the two of you for the way you've championed um, making sure we do everything we can to rid our, our world of corruption. We'll consider the huge challenge of corruption and the extent to which widespread and pervasive public breach of trust internationally can undermine our most important national interests. Our witness today will point out that corruption goes far beyond the loss of foreign aid dollars and foreign corrupt practices such as bribery and places our businesses at a competitive disadvantage. Public corruption can undermine our most important interest in security and stability. Our witness today, witnesses today will argue there is a direct connection between the abuse of authority and the breakdown in governance. In some cases, widespread abuses can stoke the fires of populism against corrupt governments, increasing the chances of instability or even violence. In the most extreme cases, we risk seeing important countries fall prey to predatory officials determined to enrich themselves at the cost of their citizens' welfare. Such states, when coupled with a government monopoly on power, can present extraordinary national security risk to the United States. If we want to fight corruption effectively and institute norms of government accountability, we have to develop smart strategies that allow us to target efforts at multiple levels of government and the population at large. We must be firm but fair, recognizing that cultivating a culture of public integrity may, in many countries, take a very, very long time. The challenge for us is to help governments make progress on reducing corruption while still continuing to work with them on a range of issues important to us. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member and friend, Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, first of all, thank you for your extraordinary leadership of this committee uh, to deal with good governance and corruption issues. Um, we were together today at the State Department on the release of the 2016 Trafficking in Persons Report. There is no stronger advocate for a strong U.S. position on stopping modern-day slavery than our chairman, uh, Senator Corker. And we thank you. And as I will point out during this hearing, trafficking in persons is horrible, 20 million victims. But it's fueled by corruption, people making a lot of corrupt money off of trafficking in persons. So it's very much related to the, the hearing we have today. And I, I have really looked forward to this hearing for many reasons. Uh, two of those reasons are the, our first uh, witnesses on the panel. Uh, Gail Smith, our administrator for the USAID, does an incredible job, has had a critical career. And Tom Molinowski, the Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor our inside person at the State Department on these issues, we appreciate very much both of your leadership on dealing with, uh, uh, with corruption. There is a growing recognition in the United States and around the world of the threat that corruption presents to international security and stability. We've all seen the headlines about corruption and feel like it's pervasive, from scandals in places such as Brazil and Malaysia 
to doping of Russian athletes and their subsequent ban from the Summer Olympics to the Panama Papers. What is certainly becoming clear is that where there's a high level of corruption, we find fragile states or states suffering from internal or external conflict. Places such as Afghanistan and Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Nigeria, and Sudan. Corruption and the dysfunction that follows it fuels violent extremism. Corruption becomes a deeply held grievance that mutates into a basis for revolutions that spin out of control. Just two weeks ago, we heard in this committee how corruption feeds the destructive fire of criminal networks and transnational crime. Corruption pushes young people towards violence and extremism because they lose faith in the institutions that are supposed to protect and serve them. They lose faith in the compact between government and the people. And terrorist groups use corruption to recruit followers in their hateful crimes. The human cost of corruption is substantial. Here are just two examples. First, this morning the State Department released its annual tip report as I pointed out. Corruption is a constant companion to modern day slavery and the suffering that it brings. We've also seen this in the refugees and migrant crisis where thousands have lost their lives in the Mediterranean, victims of trafficking networks and corrupt government officials who facilitate illicit business. And make no mistake about it, corruption is a very big business. One news report estimates that traffickers made between five to six billion dollars in 2015 alone in bringing approximately one million refugees and migrants to Europe. Corruption also damages our foreign assistance efforts. This is U.S. taxpayer dollars that we're using, that we have a responsibility to make sure is used most effectively. Our development efforts are undermined when people decide that siphoning off money makes more sense than using it for its intended purpose. In our work training security forces and police, corruption drains the will of good people to serve their country, robs forces of necessary equipment, and undermines the very effort to build capable institutions that can protect and serve. It is also costing us. According to one estimate, between 2003 and 2012, the international community has lost $6.6 trillion to elicit outflows of money that was intended to, to, to do good, not harm. As, as I indicated several times, it just operates just opposite of what we're trying to do. So if we're using our taxpayer dollars, and that is fueling corruption, that's accomplishing the exact opposite purpose for why we have development assistance and security assistance. Uh, we need a larger sum of our efforts to be put into good governance and to deal with these issues so that we can effectively deal with the other missions in which development assistance and security assistance is aimed to do. I want to make it clear that the United States has been doing a lot, good work on anti-corruption. The Department uh, for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor has focused on governance programs to build civil society capacity, which I believe is essential and using the open government partnership as a tool to monitor commitments by countries to fight corruption. USAID is implementing programs to embed a culture of accountability in international standards to limit the opportunities for corruption to thrive. But the problem of corruption is growing, not shrinking. We must meet the scale of the problem with greater resolve and commitment. To do that, I believe we should focus on four things. And let me just mention them very quickly, Mr. Chairman. First, we must institutionalize the fight against corruption as a national security priority. Yes, corruption is part of the State Department's annual human rights report, but it's just a small portion of it. Ensuring that bureaus and our missions overseas prioritize corruption in their struggle planning is essential. Second, we need a whole government effort 
and must be better coordinated. Right now, we work across multiple agencies and multiple offices on corruption. There's much information on best practices that needs to be shared. Third, we need to find ways to fund anti-corruption work. We need resources. Corruption is a big business and big money. We should look at ways that we can use seized assets or ill-gotten proceeds to build civil society capacity to fight corruption and make it easier to transfer these assets to the appropriate effort. And fourth, we must improve our oversight of foreign uh, and security assistance and promote transparency. Yesterday, the Senate passed the Foreign Assistance Transparency and Accountability Act, which was sponsored by Senator Rubio and myself. Mr. Chairman, thank you for your help, not only in getting it out of the committee, but getting it through the process. That, this bill will shine a light on foreign aid and ensure that U.S. foreign assistance programs are measured adequately and appropriately. It also provides empowers civil societies to, in recipient countries to combat corruption. And secondly, through the Cardin-Luger provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act, Section 1504, I have uh, pushed for greater revenue transparency in extractive sectors uh, because we know that secrecy breeds corruption. After six long years, the SEC finally has issued its regulation, and it's a strong regulation. After we acted six years ago, the rest of the, a lot of other countries have passed a, a, what we consider to be the right standard for extractive industries to show where their contracts are so you can trace, trace the money, uh, we now regain our leadership uh, through this regulation uh, on transparency. We want, as you know, uh, the, the resources of a nation not to be a curse, but to help bring them out of poverty. We want our development assistance to be a, a help to a country and not fuel corruption. Uh, these were two great successes the uh, transparency bill and uh, the SEC regulations, and we hope that we can build on that. So let me be clear-eyed. The fight against corruption is long and difficult, and I know that we have to stay committed to this end. I am uh, very much encouraged by the efforts that I see in my colleagues, and, and I do look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you. Thank you very much for those comments. Uh, we have two panels today, and our first uh, witness today is the Honorable Gail Smith. Administrator for U.S. Agency for International Development. I'm glad she's assumed this role and uh, believe that uh, her relationship, uh, pre-existing relationship with the White House is something that greatly fen uh, benefits USAID and we're looking forward to your testimony. Our second witness on the panel today is uh, the Honorable Tom Malinowski, Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor at the State Department. I uh, first met Tom over an adult beverage in Munich uh, when he was on the outside, and I look forward to having one when he's uh, finished with this job to tell me the differences between being <laughs> on the outside and on the inside. But today, uh, we look forward to his testimony. And with that, if you could summarize your comments in about five minutes or so, um, and uh, without objection, your written comments will be entered into the record. But if you begin, Gail, we'd appreciate it. Again, thank you for being here. Thank you, and I will be brief. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker and Senator Cardin and members of the committee for the opportunity to discuss USAID's work to combat corruption across the globe. I also want to thank you for your continued leadership and ongoing commitment to elevate this issue and advance accountability and transparency, and I would fully concur that it's been a very good week. As you know, corruption tears at the fabric of society and hinders inclusive economic growth and democratic governance. It also poses major security risks to the United States often enabling radicalization and fueling political instability and conflict. 
At aid, we measure the effects of corruption in dollars lost, missed opportunities for inclusive development, <coughs> excuse me, for inclusive economic growth and development, the erosion of public confidence in government, and rising insecurity. As risks and threats posed by corruption continue to increase, however, we're also seeing some small but important new windows of opportunity emerge, including an increased citizens' demand for accountability and transparency, the growing commitment of some political leaders, and an emerging global consensus embodied in many places but also in the Sustainable Development Goals that effective governance and strong institutions are required to sustain development outcomes. Building on decades of U.S. leadership, President Obama has made fighting corruption a national security priority. With a diverse array of agencies engaged in anti-corruption work, each with comparative advantage in different missions, authorities, and tools, the United States is able to attack corruption from every angle, including through building and enforcing the rule of law, enhancing the disclosure, detection, and prevention of corrupt practices, developing capacity institutions, and engaging civil society, foreign governments, and multilateral institutions as partners. For USAID, global anti-corruption efforts also include the promotion of human rights, participatory democracy, transparent governance, the role for a vibrant civil society, and economic empowerment. As the United States lead development agency with programs in more than 100 countries worldwide, USAID's primary role within the US strategy is to empower citizens, embed norms and standards, and build accountable and transparent institutions. Where we can enlist governments and their citizens as able and willing partners, we are increasing the scale and impact of anti-corruption efforts in the countries, regions, and sectors in which we operate. We do this in four ways. First, advancing accountability. Second, improving open, effective, and democratic governance. Third, strengthening adherence to international norms and standards. And fourth, leading multilateral efforts to tackle corruption. From a development perspective, accountability is most effectively sustained when a vibrant civil society has the rights, capacity, and tools to hold governments, businesses, and citizens to account. Through our support for civil society, USAID and our partners enhance the capacity of citizen watchdogs to oversee local public spending, promote community development reconstruction, and monitor the delivery of services. A recent example where USAID and the State Department are supporting civil society is in the case of support for investigative journalists, including for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, which has recently helped expose the scope and nature of corruption around the world. As we support citizens who are demanding change and help build their capacity to hold their governments accountable, we must also support governments as they work to strengthen their institutions and develop more effective and, effect and efficient systems with built-in transparency. For example, we helped Honduras establish the country's first legal assistance and anti-corruption complaint center, and our support for tax and customs reform in Georgia helped decrease business expectations of corruption by tax officials by more than 80%. USAID also has an important role to play in developing and embedding the international norms and standards that incentivize anti-corruption actions. Through the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, USAID has helped strengthen a powerful and visible platform to increase revenue transparency and accountability in the natural resources sector. USAID also helps emerging democracies meet their obligations under a number of international standards for transparency including the UN Convention Against Corruption, EITI, and the SDGs. 
Additionally, USAID forges partnerships with other donors, multilateral agencies, and civil society organizations to help leverage and sustain local initiatives and to help enable the sharing of best practices and replication. The 70 country strong open government partnership has been effective in engaging the interest of governments in greater transparency and a role for a civil society to hold them accountable. And USAID supports efforts to help countries become eligible and assist member countries with their national action plans. The last thing I want to touch on is how we're working to safeguard USAID's own investments. We continually look for new opportunities to improve our monitoring approaches and have developed tools like the Public Financial Management Risk Assessment Framework to assess the capabilities of partner governments and other recipients to properly administer funds. Even with the smart steps we've taken and careful measures we've put in place, we remain vigilant because of <clears throat> access constraints and other difficulties in the places we work. We're committed to working closely with Congress to prevent corruption and other misuses of taxpayer dollars, and equally committed to taking swift action upon learning of any such abuse. Thank you again for this opportunity. We share with you your diagnosis and analysis of the problem and hope we can work together to expand on the areas where we're having success and redouble our efforts in those areas that need more attention. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Malinowski. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, uh, Senator Cardin. Thank you for holding the hearing and for bringing increased attention uh, to this challenge. Let me start with a, a, a brief story about um, an experience I had on one of my first trips to uh, Africa in this job. I met a group of journalists who had fled a terror-ridden country. I'm not gonna name it in order to protect them. Basically in fear for their lives. Um, these guys were trained professionals. They were integrating into uh, it, into the country uh, where they had taken refuge. And, and I asked them, so what's it like for you here? And they said, you know, we're, we're happy to be here, we're happy to be safe, but every single one of us at some point has been arrested by the local police. Each time, they said, they had been held at the police station until a relative or friend could come to pay a bribe to get them out. One of them said, the police station where we live, we don't actually call it a police station, we call it the people market. Now, seeing as they had fled terrorism, and obviously were on our side in this fight against terrorism, I, I asked them if someone they thought was a terrorist moved into their neighborhood, would they call the police? And they laughed, and one man replied, well, of course not. If we did that, either the police would come and arrest us again to get a bribe, or if they arrested the terrorist, someone would bribe him out, and then he'd come and kill us. And so there, I think, in a nutshell, is the connection between this scourge and our interest in fighting violent extremism around the world. No matter what else we do, we're not going to defeat that problem where there's no trust between governments and the communities where terrorists hide, where the authorities are as likely to shake people down as they are to protect them, where corruption hollows out security forces, where it feeds terrorist propaganda that promises to purify societies of the scourge. And so fighting corruption is absolutely critical to our security. As Administrator Smith um, said, it's critical to a whole bunch of other important goals, including uh, economic development, I would argue, it is central 
as well to our promotion of human rights around the world, um, in part because corruption is the central organizing principle of a lot of uh, dictatorships, and I think this is the interesting part. Also, often their biggest political vulnerability, um, because stealing is, in a sense, the one crime that no dictator can ever justify, and the one issue that is most likely to rally public support against them, as we've seen from Russia to Venezuela to many other countries. So for these reasons, the administration has said that corruption has to be treated as a first-order national uh, security priority. Question is, how do, you effect, how do you effectively combat something that is, in many ways, one of the oldest and deepest failures of human nature? And I think we have to be honest, we haven't always been good at combating it, particularly when it exists at high levels, um, particularly when it is committed by people with great power, at least until those people have lost their power. But I think we have an emerging strategy that can work. It begins by promoting greater transparency, which is something that we do throughout the world, through international institutions like the G20, FATF, EITI. You mentioned the Dodd-Frank rule, which is an advance uh, in, uh, in that work. Um, because of this steady, slow, not dramatic work, it is much more likely today that the dirty money kleptocrats try to hide will come into the light. Second, supporting civil society-led investigations. Greater transparency leaves the evidence of corruption hiding in plain sight, but someone still has to sort through the gigabytes of information that governments, companies, and financial institutions disclose to find it. And interestingly, I think the transnational networks of journalists, NGOs, have some advantages over government and law enforcement <coughs> entities in finding the, um, the initial pieces of evidence that lead us to those crimes. And some of the work that we have mutually invested in with NGOs, just a few million dollars, has helped to spark seizures and settlements worth billions of dollars to our treasury and to other law-abiding governments around the world. Third, we've got to support the law enforcement institutions because ultimately only they can prosecute um, the crime. One of our roles at the State Department is providing that kind of support with our colleagues in the Justice Department to emerging democracies that are asking us for help. Ukraine, Burma, Sri Lanka, Nigeria, and others. That's where we need resources. Um, and where governments like that lack the will to act, that's where our own law enforcement agencies can step in and act. And we have seen the Justice Department through its new anti-kleptocracy unit do some really remarkable and impactful things. Now across this range of efforts, there's more that needs to be done. And I'll just mention a couple of things. First, when I ask human rights activists around the world how the United States can best help them, they often say something like this. We know you don't control what happens in Russia or the Congo, but you do control what happens in America. So please, at the very least, don't let those who profit from abuse of power in our country hide their money in yours. And yet, as you know, it is still possible for kleptocrats to establish anonymously owned shell companies in the United States. That's why we propose legislation to require all companies formed in the U.S. to identify their so-called beneficial ownership, the actual human being who owns, or, uh, who owns or controls them, and to make that information more readily available to law enforcement. There are few pieces of legislation Congress can pass that will do more to advance the fight 
against human rights abuses and corruption than this. And we can provide more resources, particularly to the civil society organizations that expose uh, the crime before anybody else does. At the London Summit on Anti-Corruption last month, Secretary Kerry announced that we will establish a global consortium to support the work of civil society and investigative journalists to uncover corruption around the world. We will be making an initial investment, um, but we hope that other governments as well as private foundations will contribute as well. There's so much more we can talk about from using our visa authorities to better scrutiny of security assistance to law enforcement cooperation mechanisms that we're trying to stand up. The goal here is to do for the anti-corruption movement what we did collectively for the human rights movement over the last 30 or 40 years, making it at that level in terms of global attention, that level in terms of how our foreign policy advances it. We are not there yet, but we are getting there. With your help, we will. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that testimony, and, and um, I appreciate the, uh, um, the suggestion as to what we can do better here. Um, and along that line, I, uh, uh, Ben and I were over this morning, as he mentioned, at the TIP release and saw the inspirational work of people in other countries that risk their lives um, to, to help other people relative to slavery. And I, I look at all the things that I know in this political season, there's a lot of discussion about how bad our country is. Um, but our country does a lot of great things around the world um, with very little resources in most cases. And, you know, I think sometimes we don't talk enough about that and, and what it means to other people who are victims or um, have difficult uh, circumstances for us to show that leadership. At the same time, and to you, Administrator Smith, um, we've begun to look a lot at, at what we do at USAID. I know we haven't had an authorization in years for lots of reasons. Um, and it seems like that we do an outstanding job in the healthcare area. Um, it's amazing what our nation has done uh, relative to HIV and what people did collectively have done with malaria and tuberculosis, and it's, an, it's pretty amazing. Um, and it seems like we can do a lot on the economic front with a different focus. Uh, but a lot of people look at what we ourselves do as sort of a holdover from the Cold War model where much of our foreign aid is really about buying influence and we haven't really transitioned um, to a place that uh, is more beneficial than it could be. Are there things that we could look at within our own aid assistance uh, to move away from, again, a Cold War model where we're competing against the Soviet Union for, for influence and instead, um, and is that part, is that one of the issues that we have, um, that uh, in essence we still carry out aid in that manner? And are we in some cases actually allowing uh, more corruption to take place in countries? Uh, thank you for that question, Senator, and there's always more we can do. I would point to a few things. You rightly said at the beginning that we do a lot around the world and we sometimes don't tell our story very well. Yeah. I actually think our story on this issue is one that we don't tell as well as we might because one of the things that matters is the standards that we uphold. So for example, the recent SEC ruling puts us in very good stead and gives us at USAID and also the State Department a better foundation upon which to stand. 
I think additionally, I mean, we have found that in a number of countries, I've met with leaders recently of Guatemala, uh, Ukraine, Georgia, and Albania. All of them raised corruption and what they wanted to do and had done about corruption wanted to do with us about corruption from the outset. I think in those cases, one of the things that would be very helpful that we could do together is elevate more frequently and more visibly the examples of countries and or leaders who are taking often bold and courageous steps to fight corruption because it's often at great political risk. Now, all of those, face, all of those countries face huge challenges, may succeed, may fail, but I think giving them visibility when they try. Uh, something that's helping us, I think, get over the, the hurdle that, that you point to, and I think we're further, certainly further along than we were during the Cold War, Two things, I think, for USAID. Uh, one is identifying cases, even in those countries where we may have a major national security priority and, and a number of interests at play, where we can pull whatever thread we need to pull to start to make progress on corruption. I'm reasonably optimistic about some of the threads we've been able to identify recently, for example, in places like Afghanistan. But the second is the work that we do on evaluation, because I think that's the work that tells us where we're making progress and where we're not. We do 200 of those a year, we publish them. I think that's the evidence base that can help us from a policy perspective and an aid programming perspective be frank about what we know about what is working and what isn't, because that's part of what we've got to grapple with. But are they, again, back to the, to, yeah. to the, to the essence of the question. We, we, we dole out just lots of resources and programs that are just redundant um, all around the world that, that aren't really what you would call, um, they're not breakthrough kinds of things. I mean, you know, people expect it. They know it's going to come. And um, again, I'm, as you know, I mean, I'm a strong supporter of yep. our engagement around the world and, and uh, am just so proud of what our nation has done to, to deal with HIV and what we're getting ready to do, I hope, uh, to deal with modern slavery. So please know, uh, yeah. strong supporter of those efforts. But when I, when I travel around the, the world, as all of us do, and I look at these over and over and over programs that are having no effect, really, um, and that these governments just expect that these monies are going to come regardless of their actions, are we really just with the way we pass out monies uh, in ways that, uh, with definitions that sound great, but are we really doing what we should in the deliverance of aid to ensure that we're not contributing more so to uh, corruption in the countries? I know we're evaluating, I know we're holding up heroes, but if we ever looked at the way we're delivering aid yeah. to more fully empower people within those countries that are doing the right things versus many of the governments that we deal with that aren't? Yeah, look, I think that's a good question. I'd point to a couple things we're doing, and I think uh, having support from you all up here on those would be helpful. Uh, one, and, and one point I would make is that from the USAID side, we provide very little money directly to governments. Very, very little money, and where we do provide money to a government, as in through a government's budget, it's for a project-specific time-defined period. And we report uh, to Congress on those, and there's a lot of uh, work that goes in on the front end to assess risk. 
The other thing that we have been doing for a few years is what we call selectivity and focus, where we really look at our programs around the world and using these evaluations to judge in part what isn't working. What are the things we've been doing for 10, 12, 15 years that we just do because it's automatic? And where and how do we stop those? Uh, there have been more than 200 programs curtailed by aid over the last few years, and there are many countries we're looking at where it's our view that we should either scale back or, or pull out uh, altogether. So that's part of the regular process within USAID right now, and it would be great to have support for our doing that on a regular basis and for you to take a look at that and see if you're in agreement of where we're making those choices. That'd be good. Listen, uh, uh, Senator Menendez, I know, has a time issue, and we're, like, we're glad to defer to him. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I thank the ranking member for, for his courtesy. Uh, thank you both for your work. Let me ask you, um, with reference uh, to Afghanistan, which is constantly ranked one of the top three most corrupt countries in the world behind North Korea and Somalia, um, on April 28th of this year, the Senate passed the Afghanistan Accountability Act. Um, and I am proud to have worked with the chairman and the ranking member to have uh, been an author of it. It provides uh, uh, for the president to offer technical and financial assistance to the government of Afghanistan and Afghan civil society. And while it's early, I wonder uh, how you can measure uh, our progress in addressing corruption in Afghanistan since we have committed so many lives in national treasure. Uh, to that country. I understand that President Ghani has made a significant commitment to addressing corruption, but he's only one person. How would you assess the Afghan government's commitment across the board? Uh, thank you, Senator, and thank you also for uh, your work on this issue of accountability. We think it's critically important, not uh, least because we're responsible for taxpayer dollars, but it's also the thing that determines whether we have the outcomes we're trying to achieve. I, I would say it's too early to tell whether across the board uh, the government has institutionalized and internalized the commitment that President Ghani has made. Uh, but part of our job is to try to find ways to make these things work. So let me tell you about a meeting I recently had with Afghanistan's Minister of Health. Uh, he recently commissioned an evaluation of the entire health sector through their monitoring and evaluation committee that the president stood up on corruption to identify cases of corruption across the health sector. Uh, as you might expect, it was a fairly damning report that identified a huge amount of corruption across the system from procurement to local officials all the way through. He is now, and we will work with them to do this, uh, putting together a plan to take on those gaps step by step by step. Now, is that enough to reverse the uh, situation in Afghanistan altogether or to take it from the corrupt side of the ledger and put it in the non-corrupt side? No. It is an opportunity, though, and this is something we've seen in development across the board, to demonstrate what can be done such that others have the incentive or, in some cases, the obligation and the pressure from civil society to replicate it. So again, it's it's small, but we think it's not insignificant. And I think this will be a good measure uh, of whether the government is, in fact, internalizing the kind of directives that President Ghani has put forward. And we're happy to keep you informed of it as an I'd be interested in knowing. I, I understand that the Afghan government has made efforts to diminish, for example, corruption at border and custom posts. Yeah. Uh, and that progress should be recognized and commended. 
at the same time that we're urging them to do other things. But uh, I'm wondering, uh, Secretary Malinowski, whether uh, uh, our legislation suggested that individual Afghan government officials could be subject, uh, should be subject to visa bans and asset freezes in the events they're found involved to be involved in the type of corruption that we're talking about. Uh, similar measures have been taken in the cases of Russia and Hungary. Uh, are those efforts efforts that are warranted in this regard? I mean, uh, we, we want to see what President Ghani is doing in our assistance, as uh, Administrator Smith talked about in the health care. But when there is a reticence to move, are we going to consider those types of actions? Yeah, I, I think as a general rule, we, we would agree that you need a combination of capacity building for those who are... Uh, committed to being part of the solution, and there are many people in Afghanistan who are passionately committed to this because it's their country and they don't want their country sold to the highest bidder, and I think President Ghani is uh, the first among them, um, but a combination of that capacity building and accountability. Uh, we have, uh, as you know, uh, visa ban authority related to corruption. Um, the evidentiary standard, uh, as I have learned uh, in my two years in this job, is quite high, I would say appropriately high, when you're using those kinds of tools, as it is for um, asset freezes, financial sanctions, and the things that Treasury and uh, DOJ do very effectively. Um, but there is certainly no reticence uh, when it comes to using those authorities. We have used them uh, all over the world. Uh, when we uh, deny a visa or simply put someone on a watch list because they haven't applied yet, it's not something that people generally know, uh, except for the person who may walk into an embassy and apply for a visa and, uh, and realize that there's a problem. But it's a, it's a, it's a powerful message Indeed. when it's appropriately used. And that message spreads, as we say in Spanish, radio bemba, mm -hmm. which means, you know, ra radio lips. It spreads really quick exactly. uh, in terms of the consequences. And that we are serious about it. I don't, I don't suggest that we use it carte blanche, but we certainly, when it's appropriate, if you use it, I think it has a ripple effect uh, along the way. May I have one last question, if, if I may? Um, Mr. Gershman, who's on the next panel, and I have a great deal of respect for him and the, the work that they do, has in his testimony something that I, I just think we should call our attention to, because I, I didn't even really think about it. I, in a sense, I know it, but I really didn't think about it. He calls it the problem of Western enablers. Basically, entities in the West that ultimately help take those entities in the world, those individuals in the world, uh, who ultimately use their ill-gotten gains in a way and cleanse it so that they can become philanthropists, uh, to get in his own remarks, uh, photographed alongside celebrated international figures and media stars. Uh, I'm wondering, and, and this may be not a State Department issue, may be a different dimension, Mr. Chairman, of, uh, of our work here, but I'm wondering what we do, and the ranking member, to think about how we can create uh, some type of effort to suggest that if you knowingly engage uh, in the practice of helping people cleanse their ill-gotten gains, it may not be through the banking system, although the banking system may be one of them, one of the most powerful elements of it, but in other ways as well, that there is some type of action to be, to be considered. Because if you can't cleanse your money and you're stuck where you are and you want to really get out of it or you want to protect your money somewhere else and have the access to what it means 
yeah. uh, and it gets closed down, it's another element, I think, globally of trying to pursue it. So I just, I just think it's a tremendous part of Mr. Yeah. Gershman's uh, testimony that struck me, and I just wanted to bring it up as food for thought. I, I don't want to condemn everybody that's in this program by any stretch, but that's one of the concerns I've had about the EB-5 program, candidly. Um, you know, where people are buying the ability to live here in our country with large sums of money, and I know that I, I would say the vast majority of people who do so are probably fine people, but my guess is there are a whole lot of folks that uh, and, are not and, uh, in that category, and we're actually encouraging uh, that. I appreciate the, uh, the the legislation you suggested a minute ago, but I, I think we and, should look And at how it. we vet whether for that program or others yeah. is, is, right. is a real concern, and I share your, your interest. Thank you, thank you. Did you want to say something? Just yeah. two quick things on this, and I would, uh, I, I think you're right that other agencies and departments are very focused on this, including Treasury and Justice, uh, because they have been scrutinizing things like high-end real estate and other things that people are able to do uh, to, to use ill-gotten gains to establish themselves here or elsewhere. I would just make a brief plug for something else, which is related to this, but I think would help which we started working on several years ago and Secretary Kerry announced that the US and the UK will convene a global forum on asset recovery. Because part of the challenge here is that we know that these kleptocrats steal billions of dollars. It is hard to then get a hold of that money and reinvest it in development or anything else. We've tried to streamline our procedures and those of other countries so it is easier for citizens to track down those assets. But I think this is an area where if the U.S. can continue to lead, it doesn't entirely solve the problem you point to, but it does send a signal that we are better and better at and will come after your assets, which is a good disincentive. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Anything else? Senator Perdue. Thank you, and thank you both uh, for being here. I, I just want to thank the ranking member and the chairman for having this meeting. I think a lot of people look at the title of this and say, well, okay, it's another, you know, another hearing. This is a profound hearing, in my view, because of the situation we are in the world. And I'd like to put a little perspective on that. Right now, in 1992 to 2000, under President Clinton, the State Department spent about $20 billion running itself on, and it was very, very consistent, $20 billion a year. Under President Bush, we averaged about $30 billion running, and that includes USAID. In the last seven years, we spent $54 billion. Of that, $34 billion has been pretty routinely spent on foreign aid. And when I look at that and look at the comparative uh, uh, balance of what we've been borrowing in the last uh, seven years, compare that with the percentage that's discretionary. This comes out of our discretionary budget. This, these, are, these are dollars we argue about every year. About 30% of what we spend is discretionary but we are borrowing 35%, which means that every dollar that we spend discretionary, including USAID money, is technically borrowed money. And let me say that again, Mr. Chairman. Technically, every dime we spend on defense, every dime we spend on foreign aid, and a lot of what we spend on domestic programs is borrowed. Therefore, it, is, it behooves us to be very, very careful about how we invest this money. That doesn't mean that we're not all very, very strong supporters of the impact of our foreign aid. We've reduced through Marshall Plan, um, foreign aid, and a lot of other things, globalization, and our own economy, we've reduced poverty in the rest of the world dramatically in the last 50 years, while our poverty since 1965 remains pretty much unchanged. So I think this, this puts in perspective why this is so critical, this anti-corruption 
issue is so important and how we spend our money here is so important. I'm an advocate that we actually need to spend more. I think we could avoid wars and all that. You've heard me talk about that. But I love the leverage impact of what you guys are already doing with Power Africa and others where we get private money to partner with public money and actually get great economic returns. However, people like General Kelly talk about the former commander, combat commander of uh, Southcom, whose primary responsibility was to interdict drugs coming to the United States, says because of limited resources, he can only really interdict about 20% of what they actually see and can measure. So this, this is the comparison of priorities, and I know that what you do, um, Ms. Smith, since you've been there, you've only been there a little while, is to focus on priorities. You've talked to me about that. I've heard you talk publicly about that. I'd love to, to, uh, to have you talk about that relative to the issues here, but let me put it one last uh, point of perspective. We spent about $34 billion in foreign aid. There are only about 75 of the world's largest companies whose revenue is bigger than that. So if you think about it, Delta Airlines, pretty big outfit. Delta Airlines in my home state, uh, if you took all of their revenues, it would equate pretty much to what we spend in foreign aid. Just that puts it in perspective. But I'd love to know of that, what percentage do we think is being siphoned off through corrupt practices in places that we're trying to help? And we know that there's some percentage. And what percentage are we spending of the $34 billion toward uh, anti-corruption efforts? Those are, those are two questions. And then I guess the other is that the chairman mentioned redundant. I know you, you have a heart about this. Programs that are similar, programs that are redundant, uh, give us an idea. You've only been on the ground a little while. Tell us your early imp, uh, indication, or your early uh, uh, or, uh, opinion about, uh, about that as well, if you don't mind. About redundancy. redundancy. Uh, thank you, Senator. Let me say a, a couple things. In terms of where this fits in priorities, I would say it's a very high priority, the whole issue of anti-corruption. The way that is manifested is, is actually quite interesting, I think. A did a study looking at 300 anti-corruption programs uh, between 2008 and 2013 to determine their effectiveness. And, I, and what was concluded, and I think it's right, was that we would have greater impact if we integrate this as much as possible into everything we do, as opposed to just having a little subset of anti-corruption programs over here. So the way we actually spend our money we have some resources that go to dedicated anti-corruption programs that may be supporting a commission of integrity, training, specific support for civil society on that. But our other resources, for example, that I think are having huge impact. One, as both Tom and I have talked about, is ongoing support for civil society, which enables it not only to incrementally and incidentally take on corruption, but in the big picture, if you look at Guatemala or Ukraine, the changes and public citizens' demands in those countries had a lot to do with the strength of civil society, but of, society of, over time. Of what, what rough percentage, just directionally, would you say that we're spending in this anti-corruption effort? So if it's specific anti-corruption, it's in the range of 70 to $80 million. But let me give you another example. Ukraine, where it's been a huge concern of all of us. We have helped Ukraine put in place an electronic procurement system not the most sexy development bumper sticker we can put out there, but the impact of that is huge because it reduces the number of people in a transaction. It makes the information transparent and available to everybody to look at the entire system. And it has a huge impact on the ability of people to exploit the system. We don't count those dollars as corruption dollars. They are part of the broader Ukraine package. So I'm hesitant to say 
it's this much money in a given case. The work we've done on customs and border control and training in that, in that kind of issue. I think in terms of what is siphoned off, let me, let me state a couple things at the outset. Uh, we are constantly looking at where we're vulnerable. Uh, one of the things I'm very pleased about is the committee at about the same time you confirmed me, you confirmed a new inspector general who's been enormously effective and we work very closely with. We frequently ask her and her team to look into things and give us recommendations on how we improve. I've made very clear uh, that that's something we got to do on a regular basis because we're never going to get to the point where I can say we have no vulnerabilities, nothing's being siphoned off. We've got to constantly work at that. I am uh, impressed with the measures USAID's put in place over the last several years, whether it's the upfront risk assessments, uh, the training that we are now doing for our people, the training that we have started and intend to expand for our implementers on anti-corruption in programming and project design. Uh, I think we've got a number of safeguards. We face the biggest challenge in places where we've got ongoing crisis or conflict large sums of money and security conditions mean that we don't have the kind of physical access we might have in some other cases. So we're doubling down on those. But uh, I would say, and I've known this agency for a long time as you and I have discussed, it is a lot stronger and a lot better on this than it was a few years ago. But I would also say we've got to do that on an iterative, constant basis to make sure we're checking for loopholes and vulnerabilities wherever they may be. Thank you. Mr. Malinovsky. Thanks. I I would add that embedded in the, the, the excellent question that you asked in, in Administrator Smith's answer is the, the insight that the, the, the small amounts of money that we do spend on anti-corruption, if it's well spent, saves a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, let, let me give you another example, a uh, country many of us have followed, been interested in for a long time, and that's Burma. And for 25 years, through various means, we were trying to promote a democratic transition in that country, supporting Aung San Suu Kyi and the, the brave <coughs> Democrats who were fighting for, for, for the liberation of their country. And, and this year, she becomes the leader of the country after a free election. And her first duty is to now try to deliver for her people economic dividends, making their lives better. And obviously, we want to help. Now, how can we do that? One way would be to find billions of dollars of foreign assistance, channel it in there through the World Bank and through our own budget. We don't have that. But it also happens to turn out that this is a wealthy country. They've got immense natural resources, and they have been siphoning off billions every single year, particularly in this case um, from jade mining, which is one of their most lucrative um, natural resource industries, literally billions of dollars a year through corruption, mismanagement, um, all of that empowering uh, the, the, the old forces, the military, the, the kind of military crony complex that used to run the country. And so actually just helping them get budgetary transparency, just helping them figure out where the money is going, um, helping civil society in Burma, as you mentioned, track this stuff and uncover the corruption that still exists, which we can do for much less money, can have an enormous dividend for that country and for our interests. And so replicating that across the board is what we're trying to be about. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I could, before turning to Senator Cardin, just uh, this is co this comes out of the QDDR at the State Department, just to put an exclamation point on this last conversation. The this is worldwide. The annual cost uh, to end world hunger would, is thirty billion dollars. Uh, official development assistance around the world is around the world one hundred thirty-four billion dollars. Annual investment needed to achieve uh, universal mobile broadband service around the world, connectivity everywhere, uh, $168 billion. I'm going to skip over to the total number, the total amount of bribes paid, $1 trillion, $1 trillion. The total cost of corruption, $2.6 trillion dollars worldwide and so when we look at those areas where we can make a difference whether it's ending modern slavery or dealing with hiv or dealing with other things this certainly is an area um, certainly <laughs> difficult to deal with worldwide and i know y'all working on a daily basis but where huge impact could take place uh, with that senator Cardin. well mr chairman thank you for bringing up those dollars and Senator Perdue, you're right on target with the question and I very much respect the answers that we've received. But if you look at the total resources being devoted here directly, it's extremely small and indirectly, it's still very small. Uh, the dollars that we put into specific missions, whether they be uh, hunger or health are very, very important, don't get me wrong but they overshadow all the other funds that are available within development assistance uh, to, to help other countries. And if you look at the basic programs that have existed for a long time, not the, the, the new commitments we've made within the last decade, um, it hasn't grown at all. So it's, uh, it, 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 we're out being outmatched when you look at what's at stake on the other side of the criminal, criminal elements in order to be able to continue their investments. And, Secretary Molinowski, I very much appreciated the way you connected the dots. I mean, we, we all understand that uh, it's difficult to get communities to cooperate with law enforcement to deal with extremists in their community. It's difficult under ideal circumstances, it's difficult in America. But when you add the corruption of the local police officer, it's impossible. <laughs> so it, it does fuel terrorism. And I thank you for connecting the dots there. And I. I certainly support uh, the administration's efforts to, for disclosure on shell corporations. I think it's totally consistent with what Congress did on Magnitsky. We want to deny the, uh, these corrupt officials the ability to hide their resources in the United States. That's where they want to hide them. And uh, disclosure on the shell companies would help. So I want to uh, sort of uh, use one of the procedures we use in order to make progress, and that is we try to promote best practices. What has worked? take what has worked, and invest in that again. In trafficking in persons, we know what has worked. We had a lot of programs to deal with human trafficking, but we spotlighted one in the trafficking in persons report that was passed by Congress so that we could have a common uh, Bible on accountability, on mission in each specific country, and would not only help the U.S. direct efforts, but would help the civil societies and the world effort to combat human trafficking. 
And then uh, a second issue that Senator Corker brought to our attention that is now working through our process, it was his leadership, to engage civil society is by putting legislation in that allowed us to leverage our dollars to get more civil participation in trafficking. So in both cases, I think we, we are, could do much better on corruption. So we're looking at legislation that would do a trafficking in persons type report for corruption so that we could have a common barometer globally on what we expect uh, on countries to put in place to deal with corruption, that they have the anti-corruption laws, they have independent uh, prosecutors, that they have the resources put out, those types of issues, and then evaluating these countries so that we can try to make the same type of progress that we've made in trafficking. And then the second point, uh, as I mentioned about Senator Corker's bill, uh, that's making its way through the Congress that would allow us to, to leverage our dollars to get civil societies a greater opportunity to make advancements on fighting corruption. So um, do I get your endorsement on these two bills? Um. Thank you, uh, thank you for that, and I think both of us have acknowledged that we're not doing enough yet. I think we're, we're proud of what we're doing. We're not yet where we need to be, and there are definitely areas where um, both greater resources, greater authorities, and in some cases, greater direction from the Congress would be helpful. And so I can sincerely say we welcome legislation, and we want to work with you to make sure that it's going to be, in fact, um, helpful. Um, but rather than reinventing the wheel, why don't we just take the model that was no, used I, I, to trafficking? And you and I have, have discussed this, and, and I've tried to be honest in, in, in talking about what I think are our strengths and our, um, our weaknesses uh, as an institution. Um, and I think, as I've, I've suggested, it, it is easier for us to go to a foreign government, to sit with a foreign leader, look them in the eye, and evaluate their efforts on trafficking than it is to grade them as the United States on their own criminality, which is what corruption is. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. I'm just saying it, it is a slightly different matter to look a foreign leader in the face and say, you are accepting bribes or you are not doing enough to um, root out criminality from your own institution. Um, I'll tell you what we do do, and probably could do better, um, is in, in the whole range of reporting that we already do on anti-corruption. We've got, we looked at this, we have a whole bunch of reports that touch on different pieces uh, of this. We've got the Human Rights Report, which my bureau puts out, which now includes reporting on corruption. We've got the IEGA, uh, uh, the report, the International Anti-Corruption and Good Governance Report, which our INL Bureau puts out only on a handful of countries, um, which is, I think, the closest to what you are um, looking for. Um, we could, I think, conceivably consolidate a lot of that reporting into a single, um, transparent, online, public platform where we would also take in um, reporting and evaluations from the World Bank, uh, from other international institutions, so that it's all in one place. 
I actually think it's more effective if we build in international indicators because then it's not just the United States telling other countries what their grade is, which is sometimes useful but sometimes leads to problems. Um, so I, I think we can, we can get there. We can work on something here that will achieve the purpose that I think you're looking for. And I think, I, and, I, yeah. and I absolutely will follow up on everything you just said. I, I, I would just point out in rebuttal for one moment, Ukraine is a country that is challenged on corruption. Yeah. We've said that publicly. The gov our government has said that publicly. We're not, and the Ukrainians have accepted our analysis. It's not condemning their leaders for being corrupt. It's a, it's a country that has corruption in its core. Many of the Central American countries, which are democracies, have real huge corruption issues with extortion and drug trafficking. We know that. So I'm not so sure if a country is on a path to try to deal with it, they're not helped by the analysis that we could give to bolster their need to make the type of changes that their country needs. And I'll agree with that. <laughs> and we do, and we do put out assessments, right. as you just noted. Um, and we, we put them out in a way that is not consolidated, as I have uh, conceded. And I think that's something that we can work on together. Thank you. Yeah. Go ahead, Gail. Just um, a couple things, and I, I would agree with what's been said. I think we can look at ways to pull some of these reports together, but also using the international uh, monitoring that is done. There are a lot of countries that care what their transparency international rating is, and I think we should take advantage of that rather than, than potentially replicate that. I don't think that's what you're suggesting. But if I could just say something about, you talked about what works and what would we actually look at, and just offer a couple thoughts on that. Because we look a lot at that in terms of how we measure the success we're making. One is obviously transparency and whether a country publishes its budget. Uh, <clears throat> the civil society role in this, it has to do with their civil society law, the ability of civil society to avail itself of a Freedom of Information Act and otherwise organize. This issue of systems and institutions, it's not something we typically look at. But you referred in your opening comments, I believe, to customs and border controls, procurement systems. That's the architecture of a state, and that's the machinery through which criminals operate, corrupt officials operate, and terrorists operate. But I also think we should measure progress, because one of the things we've learned across the board in development is that we're getting a lot of traction where countries are mimicking success that they see elsewhere. So if we can highlight cases where we're seeing real progress, I think that would be useful. And finally, Senator Corker, I think your points are absolutely on board when you look at the numbers. And I often think of looking at the resources that could be regained by success against corruption as development financing. And I think that's how we should frame it, that this is potential financing for development. But I wouldn't put anti-corruption and health in two different baskets. I'll just give you a brief example. In the Dominican Republic, as part of our health work on strengthening their health system, we did a review with them of their payroll system. 3,900 ghost workers were identified. They were summarily eliminated. They didn't exist in the first place. It's a savings of $9 million a year that they're reinvesting in the health sector. So we've got tangible examples of this being development financing, but I think also of our ability in sectors where the headline may be global health to, again, do that systems scrub to make sure we're fighting corruption even in those areas. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Uh, Secretary Malinowski, we have on numerous occasions 
passed different tools now available to the administration. For example, the Venezuela Defense of Human Rights and Civil Society Act that we're trying to get reauthorized gives the administration the power uh, to punish human rights abusers and those involved in corruption. So in Venezuela, the principal henchmen backing the autocratic Maduro regime, uh, according to multiple published sources, everybody knows it. It's one of those things everybody knows, are cocaine smugglers, they're money launderers. For example, Diosdado Cabello, one of the leaders in the majority party, I guess the minority party now, but Maduro's party, Tariq Alassimi, and there's just dozens of security officials and political leaders who are being investigated for this, not to mention dozens more of Venezuelan officials who have looted state-run enterprises, manipulate currency for their own pocketbook, and stealing from the people of this country while people are roaming the streets looking for food. Why, haven't, why hasn't Cabello or Alassimi or any of these other thugs, why haven't these top-notch, you know, high-level people been sanctioned? Well, first, first of all, I, I agree with your assessment, and I agree that in, in many cases, even if we're looking at, at Venezuela as a human rights challenge or a democracy challenge, that um, coming at it from the standpoint of anti-corruption is both the right thing to do and a very effective thing to do because, as I mentioned in my opening statement, stealing is the one thing you can't justify in any political context, no matter what your propaganda or ideology or support base, nobody can, can justify it. Um, and so we have imposed sanctions on a number, as you know, of Venezuelan officials. In terms of visa bans, I think we're up to about 62 uh, Venezuelans. Um, most of this we don't name because of the way in which uh, our visa ban authorities are structured. Um, but I can tell you that uh, from my standpoint, having looked at who is responsible for some of the things that you just mentioned, we have captured virtually everybody against whom we have decent evidence of corruption, human rights abuses, including at a very high level. In fact, just yesterday I signed out a few more, so we should be up to more. Well, again, I just think these two individuals, Cabello, who is the biggest thief among all of them, and Tariq Alassimi in particular, are people that we should be focused on uh, it is not even a mystery. They don't even seem to hide it. And uh, it's just shocking to me that we haven't taken it, because we've done this against other people in other parts of the world, and we've named them, and the world knows. Not only do they have a visa ban, I mean, they're, these are, there are people involved in the Maduro regime who are spending their weekends in Miami spending the money they're stealing from the Venezuelan people, while people in Venezuela, a rich country, by the way, are like rummaging through garbage in the streets every day for basic goods. It makes no sense to me. Then you've got the right-hand man of the president of El Salvador, Jose Luis Marino. This guy is a top-notch, world-class money launderer, arms smuggler for the FARC, uh, hundreds, millions of dollars of, of laundering for the FARC as well as corrupt Venezuelan officials. Why, why is this guy not sanctioned? That one I'll have to take back, Senator. Okay, well, I'll keep uh, pointing. What about the FARC? You, you're familiar with them. Uh, Indeed. Uh, this is a group that profits from cocaine smuggling, earning, earning probably close to a billion dollars annually according to Colombian authorities and under-informed sources. What is our status with them vis-a-vis -vis sanctioning them? Well, they've been in this, as far as I they're, they're call, they're on the FTO uh, list, and, uh, and they have been sanctioned over the years. So. They're economically, and not just named as a terrorist organization. Are we actively targeting any some, their monies as they move them across territory and borders? I believe that over the years, as a named foreign terrorist organization, that we have done so, yes. Okay. And that won't be impacted by the peace deal? 
Has that, there's been, has there been any discussion between the Colombian government and ours about easing any of that as a result of this peace agreement between uh, the president of Colombia has just signed and the FARC? We, we, we support um, peace in Colombia, but I think we have been clear that uh, in terms of our law enforcement and other equities, that that remains. All right, Ms. Smith, the United States has already invested upwards of, I don't know the exact few, billions of dollars, let's say, in Haiti. And most Americans understand the humanitarian nature of our response and agree with that. However, I don't think it's fair to expect the American taxpayer is going to continue to help fund elections that are overthrown because the parties are dissatisfied with the outcome. So let's have another one because we don't like who won. So can you give us an assessment of what the current programs are in Haiti? And at this point, are they eligible to continue to receive U.S. tax dollars after what we've seen now over the last year and a half? Um. Thank you, Senator. And one thing that we will do is get you a comprehensive summary of all the programs. Uh, again, as, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> the vast bulk of our assistance doesn't go directly to governments. So that in a country like Haiti, part of what we are trying to do is work with independent associations, civil society, to do the painstaking, slow work of enabling them to, again, hold governments accountable, hold up their own. I will say to you that I think Haiti is one of the greatest development cha challenges we face. Uh, there's no way uh, to cast it as otherwise. The institutions are extremely weak. Violence and crime, as you know, are on the increase. Uh, we are doing our best in some sectors to get some gains in health, food security, uh, and so on. I think governance remains the biggest challenge. We'll get you a, a summary of the programs. But I, I, in terms of eligibility, I think there are a couple questions we need to think about. Uh, one, again, we are very careful about cases where we provide government-to-government -government money. It is a tiny percentage of our budget. Uh, and I, I think Haiti is one where it would not make a great deal of sense. But the second is we face the challenges USAID, and I think is the United States, uh, of sometimes not having the luxury of saying, well, this is just too hard. We're not getting any traction so we should get out. Uh, I think we know what the consequences are in a country like Haiti if we are not present and if we disengage. Uh, but I will also confess to you, it is an uphill struggle and a constant struggle to try to get progress. Yeah, the way I probably should have stated the question is the biggest complaint we get when yeah. we interact with them is they want us to coordinate more of our aid through the government, even if it's not government to government. They want us to use their locally based organizations, yeah. the people that they pick. And I guess my point is I am as sympathetic as anyone in the Senate about what's happening in Haiti and the right. flight and the situation that they're facing. I also have, at this point, very low confidence, perhaps no confidence, that the people they're telling us we should be working through are the right people, given the history, both electorally and otherwise. We are sympathetic there, believe me. I care deeply about what's yep. happening there. But what I've seen out of the political class in Haiti, I should say for close to 80 years, but certainly over the last few, is unacceptable. And I will hope that as we continue to look for ways to continue to engage there, that, that what you are saying here is in fact the direction that we can, if it is in fact the direction we're on that we continue to be on. I'll say it point blank, I have zero confidence that if the Haitian government tells us we want you to work through this group versus that group, that there is not some deep element of corruption or even political influence at play. And, um, and I'm out of time, but we also saw as well uh, Senator Grassley's report about uh, the lack of gains that the American the Red Cross made yep. in Haiti. And we're also deeply concerned about that. Obviously, that's not necessarily taxpayer dollars. 
But that is the sort of challenge we face there and continue to face there because it is a place where even if you want to help, oftentimes it becomes impossible because someone needs to get paid off just to make it possible. Yep. And, uh, and so I hope that we'll continue to be, but, but I just wanted to make, lay out the point. This is, not an, this is not a forever proposition here. There has to be some progress there, or I can't justify to taxpayers, no matter how deeply moved I am about the circumstances there, that we're going to continue to pour money into a black hole that, that, well, where the money doesn't come out in, in a positive way. And if I may, Senator, I'm in agreement that I can't justify it either if we're, if we're pouring dollar after dollar without getting returns. Uh, I think there are some places where, again, it's slow, but we can get traction. But I think you also raise a very important point. Because on the one hand, from a development perspective, we want to strengthen government institutions and enable them to operate and not set up parallel structures. There are cases, and I think Haiti is a valid one, where if we are supporting structures or certainly being told, and we don't generally respond well to governments that tell us that you must fund this or that, that's something we make our own judgment of. Uh, but there are cases where we can't do that. And this is one where we would be happy to continue the dialogue and work with you on it. Because I think we share a concern about Haiti, but also a concern about the challenges that you point out. Thank you. Um, we, uh, we thank you both for being here. And I think there's been a number of good points that have come out today. I hope that uh, over the course of the next several months, we can engage in a way to, uh, to, to more productively deal with this. You know, corruption. Uh, has such a wide range of application uh, uh, in Russia. Uh, I mean, whole government systems are created that are dependent upon corruption. Uh, in China, where we think uh, uh, you know some corruption is being addressed, it's difficult to tell whether it's really addressing corruption or just uh, weeding out rivalries, uh, so that uh, the leadership is in a much stronger position. And then there's uh, the petty corruption that yeah. leads to revolutions where people are uh, on a daily basis harassed by law enforcement officials having to pay to, to get health care. So it's a, it's a wide range. We understand in some cases we have more leverage um, and more ability to, to make change like we do in Ukraine right now where they want to move away from the Soviet model uh, into a different era and we are assisting them and we have a little bit more leverage and, and working relationship there. But uh, look, there's a lot more that we can, there's a lot more that we can do. Um, it is at a huge cost in every regard to societies around the world and we look forward to working closely with you to, to do more to try to overcome what we know is happening in so many places. We thank you for your service. We have another panel that's coming up, and so we kindly dismiss you. And, uh, <laughs> hope you have a very nice lunch, and uh, right. we look forward but, to seeing you again. But, Senator, just for the record, I think both of us would welcome the opportunity to work with you and members of the committee on additional things we might be able to do, some of which have been discussed this morning. So that would I be think terrific. there's, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I think there's total unanimity around yeah. this issue, uh, Republicans and Democrats, and I do think there's a period of time when a lot of other things may not be happening because of the season that we're in, but this is one I think where we might uh, collectively do some things that well, would be very positive. Okay. Good. Perhaps we could discuss it over an adult beverage. <laughs> I want to I want to hear how it is on the inside over adult beverage when your turn is over. But I never over, got but, an uh, adult beverage. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what that is okay. later. There you go. <laughs> Our next panel, thank you. Um,
Our first witness is Mr. Carl Gershman, president of the National Endowment for Democracy. Mr. Gershman has done some important work on the nature and threat of kleptocracies and the threat of them to our national security. Our second witness is Ms. Sarah Chase, senior associate democracy and rule of law program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I understand Ms. Chase has firsthand experience in the challenges of corruption, having served as a special advisor to ISAF commanders McKiernan and McChrystal on implementing anti-corruption strategies in Afghanistan. We thank you both for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. And uh, if you would provide your testimony in the order I just introduced you, uh, without objection, your entire written statement will be entered into the record. If you could summarize, uh, I do know that uh, Ben's going to step back in in just one moment, but we thank you both for being here. And Carl, if you would begin, we'd appreciate it. Thank you very much, Senator. And I, wanted, I want you to know that I greatly appreciate this opportunity to testify on kleptocracy and the threat it poses to democracy and the rule of law. And I especially want to thank you for the leadership you've shown on this issue. Um, I want to also thank Senator Cardin for his leadership, especially in the passage of the Magnitsky Act, which in my view is the most important piece of human rights legislation uh, in the last uh, generation. Um, and I applaud his efforts to globalize the application of the Magnitsky standards and mechanisms. The scourge of corruption is generally viewed as a symptom of, of the larger problem of the failure of judicial media and other institutions of accountability in new or developing democracies. In kleptocracies, which is the term uh, used to designate government by thieves, corruption is the heart and of the problem and the lifeblood of the system. Karen Duisha, the author of Putin's Kleptocracy and one of the foremost experts on this issue, makes the observation <coughs> that in kleptocracies, risk is nationalized and rewards are privatized. Participation in the spoils of kleptocracies is organized and controlled by top political elites who raid state treasuries with immunity and impunity. <coughs> Whistleblowers, investigative journalists, and others who seek to expose corrupt practices themselves become targets of law enforcement and are treated as enemies of the state. By denying space for moderate political voices that could offer possible alternatives to existing policies and leaders, kleptocracies open the way for extremists. The Azerbaijani scholar and former Reagan Fussell fellow at NED, Altay Goyushav, observes that by repressing peaceful activists and reformers in Azerbaijan, the kleptocratic regime in Baku argues that it's taking steps to ensure stability, but they have it exactly wrong. By eliminating moderate voices in society, Azerbaijan's leaders set the stage for an anti-Western environment that will serve as a breeding ground for extremists who pose a grave threat to both the region and to the West. Unlike ordinary corruption, which is, which is generally be considered a problem that corrodes developing democracies from within, kleptocracy, kleptocracies project their corrupt practices beyond their national borders with an ever-increasing impact felt in new and established democracies alike. Kleptocracy is thus both a pillar of modern authoritarianism and a serious global threat. Parasitic at home, Kleptocratic regimes use global financial institutions to launder, invest, and protect their stolen funds, which they then use to increase their domination at home and to purchase influence abroad, all the while expanding their holdings and leverage in the West 
by buying extravagantly priced properties in the major global capitals. The purchase of such multi-million dollar properties, the arrangement of opaque offshore financial instruments, and the laundering of a kleptocrat's public image cannot happen without the assistance of professional enablers. This is the issue that Senator Menendez referred to before in the established democracies. People who are critical links in the process of securely embedding kleptocrats and their ill-gotten gains in our lawful systems. As the journalist Oliver Bullock has observed, what Western enablers do is in a sense more egregious than what foreign kleptocrats do. Because in the West, we have a genuine institutionalized rule of law while kleptocrats operate in systems where no real rules exist. These enablers both besmirch our own democracy and damage the prospect for democracy in foreign countries even as Western governments, as Bullock says, lecture those same countries about civil society and the rule of law. A crucial element necessary for combating modern kleptocracy will be to bring the professional intermediaries in the West, the enablers, out of the shadows and into the sunlight. The NED, with the support from Congress, is now devoting special attention to the issue of kleptocracy as part of an integrated strategic approach to a number of fundamental and integrated interrelated challenges that include the crackdown on civil society, the rise of extremist movements, the failure of governance in many new democracies, the assault on democratic norms in the international system, and the weaponization of information by Russia and other autocracies. Ending the symbiotic relationship between kleptocrats and international, the international financial system will be a critical dimension of our efforts. In this regard, it will be important to support activists and investigative journalists who are working within kleptocratic countries to fight state theft and to help them connect with international actors who are trying to monitor the flow of illicit capital and block its investment in the international system. Greater cooperation among people fighting kleptocracy at different levels might also help efforts to alert publics in the democratic countries to the serious security risks they face if hostile autocracies are allowed to exploit their institutions and legal protections to aggrandize their own power. Building a new partnership between activists, the activists fighting for the rule of law in kleptocratic countries and potential allies in the established democracies will help protect our own interests in security and advance the cause of democracy at a moment when it is in peril around the world. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Corker. It's a delight to see you again. Ranking Member Cardin, thank you both for holding this hearing and for inviting me to participate. I think the proceedings so far have done a pretty good job illustrating the scope of the problem. I'd just like to dwell for a second on some of the immaterial aspects um, that are at least as important as the financial aspects. When a cop shakes you down at the side of the road, he doesn't do it politely. There's a kind of scalding humiliation that's part of this whole problem, the injustice that I think we've talked about, um, the betrayal, when it's the very government officials you'd turn to for help who are actually doing the abuses. Um, the second point, and I think this is raised by, by Carl in the word kleptocracy, we're not 
talking about just a collection of nasty behaviors on the part of a certain number of officials. This is actually the operating system of sophisticated networks um, that are successful at doing what they're setting out to do, which is maximizing returns for network members, right? They are sophisticated and successful and structured. If anything, they're more like an integrated criminal organization than they are like a weak or fragile government. And by that I mean they are integrating across into the private sector as well as the public sector, into the criminal sector as we've, as we've just been hearing. Um, and they're vertically integrated. That cop shaking down the person on the street is sending a part of the money upwards. So all of these impacts on government um, function are deliberate. That means both the bending of certain government functions to serve these purposes and also the hollowing out. The ghost soldiers or ghost health workers are in fact deliberate. Um, I would say about 62 countries in the world uh, fall into this category and they are listed in my written testimony. How does this relate to security? I think, Mr. Cardin, you set that out just as well as I could, so I'm gonna skip over, except to emphasize a little bit the connection to violent extremism. It's not just that somebody who might be against violent extremists won't report to the police. It's that when you are abused in this way, it becomes a really persuasive argument for, for example, the head of uh, what's now called Boko Haram, um, uh, uh, residents of Medugri in northern Nigeria told me, here's what they were saying. They were saying that if only our government followed God's law, this kind of thing wouldn't be happening. That's the argument. So let's stop a minute. That means that a lot of US counterterrorism support when it has the effect of reinforcing such a government is in fact counterproductive. It's a really, I think, critical consideration here. Um, so what are we doing about it? I think we heard a lot uh, uh, to that effect earlier, um, and it is true that more than at any other time in the decade I've been working on this hard, we're doing something. But I have to say, as critical as they are, or the very critical transparency initiatives that are the focus of most of uh, the effort and which we heard Mr. Malinowski uh, discuss, I just don't think they're gonna make much of a dent, certainly not alone. Um, uh, and I'll get into sort of why. Um, but secondly, frankly, this issue is still offloaded onto under-resourced and underappreciated specialists in the bureaucracies we've been talking about. It's a subset of INL at the State Department. It's seen as not a great career choice at State. I mean, I've just been talking to, to, to folks in the last couple of days. At USAID, which spends billions, as we've been discussing, in corrupt environments, um, Twice as many officers are assigned to the important issue of LGBT rights as are assigned to corruption. And this is probably the most important, the effect of the anti-corruption efforts uh, or day marches uh, is overshadowed by the gigantic um, military and other types of assistance projects that are delivered. This mismatch is so great that from the perspective of a corrupt leader, the US isn't even contradictory, it's clear, it's okay with corruption. The lip service really is just a sop to you. Um, and so uh, I think, again, Senator Corker, you showed the way, um, the question isn't so much what's the anti-corruption programming, it's how are the flagship efforts like Power Africa um, addressing the problem. Um, 
What can you do? Um, I would actually suggest that rather than the reporting requirements um, about what is a government doing to fight corruption, which will often be a charade, you should be requiring that for every budget request for a military and civilian program greater than a certain level, there be a political economy analysis that actually um, uh, susses out what is the uh, structure and functioning of the corrupt system in that country and how is that programming going to um, mitigate, mitigate um, th that, those possibilities. I think I've just got two other things. Um, uh, you should direct state to, to develop these analyses and put them into the read-aheads on every DC and PC on the 62 countries I'm talking about. Direct both of these agencies to increase billets um, and frankly move some of the DIA, I know this isn't for you in this committee, but work to move some of the DOD uh, counterterrorism funding across to deal with some of these issues. Training, finally, is really critical. It should be mandatory in both of these agencies that uh, officers uh, uh, do corruption analysis training. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you both for that testimony and to Senator Cardin. I also want to join the chairman in thanking you for the testimony. and I. I agree with much of what both of you have stated. Jason, in regards to your, um, your recommendations on political economy analysis, I think that would be very helpful, and uh, we'll certainly take a look at, at that particular proposal. Uh, th let me ask both of you. There are countries that have serious corruption problems that are our strategic partners in the war against terror. We provide foreign military assistance to these countries. How would you urge us to use that relationship where we are providing military assistance to countries that have serious corruption issues? How should we deal with that? Senator Cardin, first of all, I... Your mic. While you were out, I... I heard you. Thank you very much for your compliment. <laughs> yeah, and, and I want you to know how, how deeply we feel that because of the importance of the Magnitsky Act Thank and you. everything you've done on that. Um, my own feeling is that the, the, the research that has been done on corruption and dealing with the problem of corruption um, underlines the fact that building an enlightened citizens, a citizenry with collective action capacity is one of the most important things that can be done in fighting corruption and kleptocracy. And this can be done through strengthening civil society, investigative journalists, and so forth. And where we have this kind of a strategic relationship, I think it gives the United States greater leverage in the relationship to keep the space open for civil society to develop and for investigative journalists to report. Obviously, we can use our own leverage on those governments to try to um, influence their behavior. But I think the most important thing we can do is to protect and open the way for the society in those countries uh, to emphasize normative values, uh, which, are, which is the most effective way ultimately to combat corruption. Um, on the political economy analysis, I can help 
you know, offline with what that might look like, what the components might be. Um, I agree that civil society is really important, but I sometimes feel like we are offloading um, all of the responsibility onto often beleaguered and very fragile civil society organizations. So what I would say, I mean, Today, I, again, just had a conversation with somebody working in the Powell Mill Bureau in, in state, and this person said literally she raises the word corruption and people roll their eyes. So it is not yet plugged into the mainstream planning on this most critical issue. We've watched our um, billions of dollars go into deliberately disabled militaries in Iraq, uh, in Afghanistan, et cetera. I think, um, number one, Paul Mill needs to go through some of this training. Number two, and that same goes for the State, uh, sorry, Defense Department and CT, number two, in countries like this, our military assistance should have as large a governance component as it does a shooting component. In other words, part of the objective needs to be to teach people in, in these militaries that how they treat their populations is as important in dealing with terrorism as how well they shoot terrorists. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Gershman, I, I did hear your compliment, and thank you very much for that. Uh, I want both of you to respond uh, to the, the two largest countries of concern, and that is uh, Russia and China. Mm. You know, we spent a lot of time in Russia. We, the Magnitsky uh, bill is, is, we're looking at making that global. It's passed both the, the, both the Senate, but it's also passed the House committee, and, and we're working on that. Uh, the amount of corruption in both of those countries are alarming. How do you, what more can the United States do to uh, advance good governance and uh, anti-corruption issues in uh, Russia and in China? Senator Cardin, that's a, obviously a very tough question. These are two very, very difficult countries. Um, I note, and um, I didn't uh, really talk about China even in my written testimony, but in the uh, Panama Papers, it reveals that, um, that the fa their fa family members of eight senior Chinese communist officials uh, own companies um, abroad uh, from China. So despite their anti-corruption campaign, which is really internal politics, um, the, the abuse is enormous. Um, and, uh, you know, and with Russia, um, it's such an unpredictable and unstable, in my view, unstable situation. Um, and I think there's a tendency on the part of people here to give up on internal forces in Russia, to say that, you know, they've passed these laws and you can't do anything. I mean, they've declared us, uh, you know, to be undesirable. But that hasn't stopped us. And we're going forward. And there are people in Russia who um, have enormous courage and are continuing, and you never know what's going to happen. Um, I believe that, and I was told by, you know, by the U.S. ambassador that Putin, you know, watches videos of Gaddafi. Uh, he feels very, very insecure. So these, these are unpredictable circumstances, and we cannot um, abandon the internal forces, weak as they are right now, um, who offer an alternative to this kind of system. And I would say the same, uh, the same goes for China. Um, uh, you, you know, the, the, the Xi regime itself is feeling deeply uh, insecure. 
um, about its own power. There was those incidents in March, as you may remember, where on a, a, a regime website, uh, an open letter appeared calling upon Xi to resign. So these are unstable situations. And in those types of situations, I don't think we, we should give up on the support for people inside the system who want you know, to, to have a system based upon universal values, which is what they call what they want. They, they believe in universal values. And so I think we have to defend those universal values with much greater vigor than we have. So, Mr. Chase, I want you to respond, if you could. It's interesting, in Russia, they've done everything they can to shut down civil societies. Uh, China is a challenge for civil societies. We have little direct leverage from the point of view of, 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 of our resources. We do have leverage in our relationship with China. Any suggestions? So I would look a little bit at the different complexions of these two countries. I would, I would actually take Xi at his word and say, look, we recognize this priority that you've given to anti-corruption. Here's what some of the implications of that would be. And that means not just corruption inside China. It also means who's China dealing with and how elsewhere in the world, in particular in Africa and in Central Asia. So that's sort of where I would go with that, and that's a diplomatic challenge. But it means this becomes one of the major issues for bilaterals with China. With Russia, I think that it's important to start looking, again, these networks, integrated, transnational networks. So let's take the banking system in Moldova, which is a pretty important, you know, if small, ally of ours. Well, the banking system in Moldova is an external network member of Russian organized kleptocratic networks, right? So let's look at how um, other ways, I mean, again, Magnitsky is fantastic, um, but what are some of the other ways that we can make that type of activity uh, more costly and painful? Thank you both. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I would ask uh, unanimous consent that the statement from the Department of Justice, which I understand we recently received, be made part of our record. Without objection. Let me, uh, you, made, you made a comment about Boko Haram and how um, it was an anecdotal statement, I know, uh, by someone in Nigeria, I assume. Um, but uh, so we do help other governments uh, with anti-terrorism, and and uh, and we're viewed as assisting governments then that uh, that are corrupt, and in some ways it creates adverse uh, feelings towards our own country. Um, again, I know you don't know every opinion in the world that exists, but here we are talking about uh, China, we're talking about Russia, you know, we could talk about Venezuela, we could talk about North Korea, we could talk about a lot of countries. Um, generally speaking, um, how, how do you think people outside of our own country uh, view the United States um, as it relates to these types of issues? Uh, just, I've spent a lot of time on the ground, and I have to say, were not viewed very well. And that's really back to what I was saying about the disproportion between the type of support that's provided to uh, highly to kleptocratic uh, governments and then the kind of anti-corruption, maybe lip service that's paid. Um, I remember, you know, when you've got the United States government, and we've uh, communicated about this issue in the past, when the United States government is providing um, suitcases or bags of cash in private meetings to a highly corrupt 
uh, uh, president, the people of that country quite naturally say, oh, you want the corruption. Mm -hmm. you, you, you're in favor of the corruption. And, and, that so, public, and that public official talks about it publicly. Correct. Correct, and this isn't, that was an egregious example, but I think it's happening all around the world. And so I think at the moment, um, our United States credibility is extremely weak on these issues, extremely weak, to the point that, as I said before, I think some of the efforts that we're doing are so flimsy in comparison to the apparent support provided to corrupt governments that it looks like um, plausible deniability in a way. It looks, as I say, like a sop to you members of Congress. And so I think we've got a really long way to go. And, and this, you know, uh, just a couple of the examples that were just given, Honduras is one. I mean, there's no way that that can be considered a government that is trying to improve on corruption. Egypt is another. Egypt is a really big problem in the whole uh, terrorism uh, context. Mr. Gershman, any additional thoughts in that regard? Well, Senator, in my testimony, I used the term that objective alliance to describe the relationship between the kleptocrats and the, the financial system. And um, I mean, you saw evidence of this in the 60-minute program about Global Witness, where somebody impersonating a corrupt figure in Africa went to 14 New York law firms to get help in, in uh, avoiding, rec you know, uh, avoiding the law, really. And, and 13 of the 14 law firms were prepared to help him. Only one said no. Uh, so there is a kind of hypocrisy there, especially if you know, we are at the same time preaching and promoting democratic values. So I think one thing that we could do is begin to address this, uh, this objective alliance. Senator Menendez was getting at it when he focused attention on the issue I raised about the enablers. And there, you know, it's a matter of transparency. It's a matter of naming and shaming. Um, it's a matter of um, figuring out ways in which, um, through, through law, uh, we can prevent the receipt of these funds. I mean, we support people in these countries, uh, investigative journalists, civil society activists, and so forth, who are trying to prevent the theft of the money, but we have to do more to prevent its, its receipt um, in our financial system, which is preceded by a laundering process and then all the other things. Uh, if we do more, I think if we can be more consistent in our behavior and by breaking this link between the uh, kleptocrats and our own system, I think that would do some good. Well, let's follow up a little bit on that. I mean, if we, we have uh, U.S. national interests all over the world, um, it seems to me that, of course, some of those countries, some of the countries we deal with uh, have come, have cultures that somewhat more like ours. Um, some of them are very different, and um, we have to deal with the world as it exists, not as we would wish for it to be, to get, we hope to get it to a different place through our involvement in leadership. But let's go back to Afghanistan, which I think is just, uh, you know, a great example. I know Ms. Chase has spent a lot of time there. Afghanistan is a country, um, whether we like it or not, uh, whose culture is built, has been built on corruption for years, um, uh, at almost every level. And uh, when we were referring, by the way, to public officials, we were not referring to the current public official, the leader of the country there, um, who I do think is 
to the extent he can, genuinely trying to deal with the corruption issue. But for instance, in Afghanistan, just to use that, lots of U.S. dollars are flowing into there. Lots of other countries' dollars are flowing in there. If you went to zero tolerance as it relates to corruption, um, I think a genuine, a fair analysis would say the, the government like would likely fail pretty quickly there. I, I think I'm just being fair in my assessment. So, I mean, how do we deal with that? So here we're dealing within a country that we know tremendous corruption takes place. I'm sure we're being viewed by the citizens there as enabling corruption, but corruption is a way of life there. Not that we're directly involved in corruption necessarily today, but let's face it, um, some ways have been uh, for influence reasons. Um, how do we how do we deal with that? I mean, it's a, the world isn't exactly the way we would wish for it to be, and we have you know we have some pretty big national interests at stake. So I think it really has to do with shaping shaping the broad range of our approaches. So it means you're not in a position where it's either you know a blank check or cut off you know, or zero tolerance. But you say, okay, we're now working in an environment where this is a very significant aspect of how things are done and a very significant aspect of our national interest because it's driving people into the arms of the enemy. Therefore, in that case, if we're providing education funding, for example, the number of schools is no longer the only measure that we use. It's the number of schools and um, the lack of shakedowns by teachers against students, right? That becomes equally important to the number of schools. And, you, and, you do, and then you do the political economy analysis, figure out, do network analysis, and figure out, wow, who are some of the really critical individuals who may be, for example, a nexus between the criminal world, the Taliban world, and the, and the government. There were individuals that were triple-hatted in those networks, and you say these are the people who are priority for some of the types of sanctioning that you, you gentlemen were discussing earlier. For example, visa bans. For example, it doesn't have to be, you know, throw the guy in jail. There's a whole variety. At least don't fly him around in our helicopters. And begin, therefore, to use the um, programming and the interactions that we are having as a way of changing the incentive st structure operating on them. Mr. Gershman. Senator, uh, when I was speaking earlier about China, I mentioned that the people who are fighting against corruption identify themselves with universal values. That's, and this is millions upon millions of people in China. The regime would promote nationalism and saying we're different from the West. This reminds me of the debate in the 1990s over Asian values when um, Lee Kuan Yew would promote that line saying democracy was not consistent with Asian values which are more top down um, and don't emphasize the individual as much and Kim Dae-jung came back with very powerful and articulate arguments rooting these universal values in Asian culture when we created the World Movement for Democracy in India, a non-Western country, in 1999, Amartya Sen came to the meeting and gave a talk where he talked about how the rootedness of Indian culture in values having to do with individual rights and the accountability 
of government officials. So these are really universal values. And I think what's going on today in the world is a struggle between people who are affirming these values, which are not narrowly Western values, but are universal values embodied in the Universal Declaration, and regimes that would like to use the argument of traditional culture as being inconsistent with these values to defend what they're doing. And I don't think we should let them get away with it. I think we should affirm our values as universal values and then identify with and support the people in these countries and cultures that want to progress and, and, and try to adapt their system to the modern world, which requires transparency and the rule of law if these countries are gonna develop economically, because it's in the interest of these countries to have the rule of law, to have transparency, to observe these, these so-called universal values. And I think we have allies there, and I don't think we should assume that because of cultural differences, somehow they're at the, they're at the other side of the world that we don't have anything in common with them. I would just, uh, I think it's a great assessment. I, I would add that there's another tension at work here, um, and that is the tension between expediency um, and going at it the sort of the long, hard way. And I think that uh, um, sometimes we uh, allow certain agencies within our government to operate, uh, especially when we have concerns about U.S. lives at stake and military operations that may be underway, the expediency of, of en enabling additional corruption versus... Uh, uh, doing the work in a, in a much more difficult way, which, by the way, could, in fact, in fairness, um, cause additional U.S. lives to be at greater risk uh, in the short term, which is obviously something that uh, we don't want to see happen. So I think we have numbers of tensions uh, that exist around this issue. You look like you want to say something. No, I, I just really wanted to thank the witnesses. Uh, the chairman can read me very well, but I... Um, I just really want to thank the witnesses and thank the chairman, if I might, um, for, for this hearing. And it's been um, typical of Senator Corker's leadership in this committee, if I just take one moment. Uh, this hearing is particularly important as we deal with corruption and how we can come together with uh, greater administration action and perhaps legislative action to help. Uh, this committee has taken on many tough issues in this Congress. Uh, we've taken on oversight of important foreign policy decisions. We've spoken out in many regions and in many countries with resolutions from this committee that clearly go on the record as to our concerns. We've been able to give additional tools to the administration to deal with human rights violations, to deal with corruption, and uh, to, to deal with nuclear proliferation. And we've done that without ever having a partisan division in this committee. I don't think any other committee in the, in the Congress can, has the type of record that we have in avoiding the pitfall of an election year politics. And I agree with the chairman's assessment. We're going to take a look at the corruption issue. We're going to take a look at whether we can get additional tools done. We're going to do it in a bipartisan manner, and we're going to do it outside of the, the, the politics of this particular year. And I, just really wanted to thank the chairman for calling this hearing and for his leadership on these issues during the, the course of this Congress. Well, thank you, and I appreciate you and your staff uh, pressing for these types of hearing and this hearing in particular, and thank our outstanding witnesses not only for being here today, but the 
advice and knowledge and wisdom that you share with us uh, in our offices from time to time. Um, if you would, we will have some written questions. I know a number of members left because our voting schedule ended last night. And if you could uh, respond fairly promptly, uh, as you will, I know um, the record will be open until the close of business on Monday. We, we thank you both for your leadership on this issue and so many others. And with that, uh, the committee's adjourned. Thank you.